0: Hello there, and welcome to tonight's episode of Down to Sleep. This is the podcast of softly spoken stories to help you get a good night's rest. Every week, I read books to you to help you get down to sleep tonight. You can listen to this podcast every week for free on podcast apps and Spotify, or you can join me on Patreon to get access to every single episode and completed audiobook so far, as well as two episodes every week. Now, take a nice deep breath for me and let's get down to sleep. The Picture of Dorian Gray Chapter 12 It was on the 9th of November, the eve of his own 38th birthday, as he often remembered afterwards. He was walking home about 11 o'clock from Lord Henry's, where he had been dining, and was wrapped in heavy furs. The night was cold and foggy. At the corner of Grosvenor Square and South Audley Street, a man passed him in the mist, walking very fast and with the collar of his grey ulster turned up. He had a bag in his hand. Dorian recognized him. It was Basil Hallward. A strange sense of fear for which he could not account came over him. He made no sign of recognition and went on quickly in the direction of his own house. But Hallward, had seen him. Dorian heard him first stopping on the pavement and then hurrying after him. In a few moments, his hand was on his arm. Dorian, what an extraordinary piece of luck. I've been waiting for you in your library ever since nine o'clock. Finally, I took pity on your tired servant and told him to go to bed as he let me out. I'm off to Paris by the midnight train, and I particularly wanted to see you before I left. I thought it was you, or rather your fur coat as you passed me, but I wasn't quite sure. Didn't you recognise me? In this fog, my dear Basil, why, I can't even recognise Grovesner Square. I believe my house is somewhere about here, but I don't feel at all certain about it. I'm sorry you're going away, as I have not seen you for ages, but I suppose you will be back soon? No. I'm going to be out of England for six months. I intend to take a studio in Paris and shut myself up till I have finished a great picture I have in my head. However, it wasn't about myself that I wanted to talk. Here we are at your door. Let me come in for a moment. I have something to say to you. I shall be charmed, but won't you miss your train? said Dorian Gray languidly as he passed up the steps and opened the door with his latch key. The lamplight struggled out through the fog and Hallward looked at his watch. "'I have heaps of time,' he answered. "'The train doesn't go anywhere till twelve-fifteen, and it is only just eleven. "'In fact, I was on my way to the club to look for you when I met you. "'You see, I shan't have any delay about luggage, as I have sent on my heavy things. "'All I have with me is in this bag, and I can easily get to Victoria in twenty minutes.' "'Dorian looked at him and smiled. "'What a way for a fashionable painter to travel.' a gladstone bag, and an ulster. Come in, or the fog will get into the house. Mind you don't talk about anything serious. Nothing is serious nowadays, at least nothing should be. Hallward shook his head as he entered, and followed Dorian into the library. There was a bright wood fire, blazing in the large open hearth. The lamps were lit, and an open Dutch silver spirit case stood with some siphons of soda-water, and large-cut glass tumblers on a little table. You see, your servant made me quite at home, Dorian. He gave me everything I wanted, including your best gold-tipped cigarettes. He's a most hospitable creature. I like him much better than the Frenchman that you used to have. What's become of the Frenchman, by the by? Dorian shrugged his shoulders. I believe he married Lady Radley's maid and has established her in Paris as an English dressmaker. Anglomania is very fashionable over there now, I hear. Seems silly of the French, doesn't it? But do you know, he was not at all a bad servant. I never liked him, but I had nothing to complain about. One often imagines things that are quite absurd. He was really very devoted to me and seemed quite sorry when he went away. Have another brandy and soda. Or would you like hock and seltzer? I always take hock and seltzer myself. There is sure to be some in the next room. "'Thanks. I won't have anything more,' said the painter, taking his cap and coat off and throwing them on the bag he had placed in the corner. "'And now, my dear fellow, I want to speak to you seriously. "'Don't frown like that. You make it so much more difficult for me.' "'What's it all about?' cried Dorian in his petulant way, flinging himself down on the sofa. "'I hope it is not about myself. I am tired of myself tonight.' I should like to be somebody else it is about yourself answered hallward in his grave deep voice and i must say it to you i shall only keep you half an hour dorian sighed and lit a cigarette half an hour he murmured it is not much to ask of you dorian and it is entirely for your own sake that i am speaking i think it is right that you should know that the most dreadful things are being said against you in London. I don't wish to know anything about them. I love scandals about other people, but scandals about myself don't interest me. They've not got the charm of novelty. They must interest you, Dorian. Every gentleman is interested in his good name. You don't want people to talk of you of something vile and degraded. Of course, you have your position and your wealth and all that kind of thing, but Position and wealth are not everything. Mind you, I don't believe these rumours at all. At least, I can't believe them when I see you. Sin is a thing that writes itself across a man's face. It cannot be concealed. People talk sometimes of secret vices. There are no such things. If a wretched man has a vice, it shows itself in the lines of his mouth. The droop of his eyelids, the moulding of his hands even. Somebody, I won't mention his name, but you know him, came to me last year to have his portrait done. I had never seen him before, and had never heard anything about him at the time, though I have heard a good deal since. He offered an extravagant price. I refused him. There was something in the shape of his fingers that I hated. I know now that I was quite right in what I fancied about him. His life is dreadful but you, Dorian, with your pure, bright, innocent face, your marvellous, untroubled youth. I can't believe anything against you, and yet I see you very seldom. You never come down to the studio now, and when I am away from you, and I hear all these hideous things that people are whispering about you, I don't know what to say. Why is it, Dorian, that a man like the Duke of Berwick leaves the room of a club when you enter it? Why is it that so many gentlemen in London will neither go to your house or invite you to theirs? You used to be a good friend of Lord Staveley. I met him at dinner last week. Your name happened to come up in the conversation in connection with the miniatures you lent to the exhibition at the Dudley. Staveley curled his lip and said that you might have the most artistic tastes, but you are a man whom no pure-minded girl should be allowed to know whom no chaste woman should sit in the same room with. I reminded him that I was a friend of yours, and asked him what he meant. He told me. He told me right out before everybody. It was horrible. Why is your friendship so fatal to young men? There was that wretched boy in the guards who committed suicide. You were his great friend. There was Sir Henry Ashton, who had to leave England with a tarnished name you and he were inseparable. What about Adrian Singleton, his dreadful end? What about Lord Kent's only son and his career? I met his father yesterday in St. James's Street. He seemed broken with shame and sorrow. What about the young Duke of Perth? What sort of life has he got now? What gentleman would associate with him? Stop, Basil. You are talking about things of which you know nothing. Lorian Gray bit his lip, and with a note of infinite contempt in his voice. You ask me why Berwick leaves a room when I enter it. It's because I know everything about his life, not because he knows anything about mine. With such blood as he has in his veins, how could his record be clean? You ask me about Henry Ashton and young Perth. Did I teach the one his vices and the other his debauchery? If Kent's silly son takes his wife from the streets, what is that to me? If Adrian Singleton writes his friend's name across a bill, am I his keeper? I know how people chatter in England. The middle classes air their moral prejudices over their gross dinner tables, whisper about what they call the profligacies of their betters in order to try and pretend that they are in smart society— on intimate terms with the people they slander. In this country, it is enough for a man to have distinction and brains for every common tongue to wag against him. And what sort of lives do these people, who pose as being moral, lead themselves? My dear fellow, you forget that we are in the native land of the hypocrite. Dorian, cried Hallward, that is not the question. England is bad enough, I know, an English society is all wrong. That is the reason why I want you to be fine. You have not been fine. One has a right to judge of a man by the effect he has over his friends. Yours seem to lose all sense of honour, of goodness, of purity. You have filled them with a madness for pleasure. They have gone down into the depths. You led them there. Yes, you led them there, and yet you can smile as you are smiling now. And there is worse behind. I know you and Harry are inseparable. Surely for that reason, if for none other, you should not have made his sister's name a byword. Take care, Basil. You go too far. I must speak, and you must listen. You shall listen. When you met Lady Gwendoline, not a breath of scandal had ever touched her. Is there a single decent woman in London now who would drive with her in the park? Why, even her children are not allowed to live with her. Then there are other stories, stories that you have been seen creeping at dawn out of dreadful houses and slinking in disguise into the foulest dens in London. Are they true? Can they be true? When I first heard them, I laughed. I hear them now, and they make me shudder. What about your country house, the life that is led there? Dorian, you don't know what is said about you. I won't tell you that I don't want to preach to you. I remember Harry saying once that every man who turned himself into an amateur curate for the moment always began by saying that, and then proceeded to break his word. I do want to preach to you. I want you to lead such a life as will make the world respect you. I want you to have a clean name and a fair record. I want you to get rid of the dreadful people you associate with. Don't shrug your shoulders like that. Don't be so indifferent. You have a wonderful influence. Let it be for good, not for evil. They say that you corrupt everyone with whom you become intimate, and that it is quite sufficient for you to enter a house for shame of some kind to follow after. I don't know whether it is so or not how would I know? But it is said of you. I am told things that seem impossible to doubt. Lord Gloucester was one of my greatest friends at Oxford. He showed me a letter that his wife had written to him when she was dying alone in her villa. Your name was implicated in the most terrible confession I have ever read. I told him it was absurd, that I knew you thoroughly, that you were incapable of anything of the kind." know you. I wonder, do I know you? Before I could answer that, I should have to see your soul. To see my soul, muttered Dorian, starting up from the sofa, turning almost white from fear. Yes, answered Hallward gravely, with a deep-toned sorrow in his voice. To see your soul. But only God can do that. A bitter laugh of mockery broke from the lips of the younger man. "'You shall see it yourself tonight," he cried, seizing a lamp from the table. "'Come. It is your own handiwork. Why shouldn't you look at it? You can tell the world all about it afterwards, if you choose. Nobody would believe you. If they did believe you, they would like me all the better for it. I know the age better than you do, that you will prate about it so tediously.' Come, I tell you, you've chattered enough about corruption. Now you shall look on it face to face. There was a madness of pride in every word he uttered. He stamped his foot upon the ground in his boyish, insolent manner. He felt a terrible joy at the thought that someone else was to share his secret, that the man who had painted the portrait that was the origin of all his shame was to be burdened for the rest of his life with the hideous memory of what he had done. Yes, he continued, coming closer to him and looking steadfastly into his stern eyes. I shall show you my soul. You shall see the thing that you fancy only God can see. Hallward started back. This is blasphemy, Dorian. You must not say things like that. They are horrible, and they don't mean anything. You think so? He laughed again. I know so. As for what I said to you tonight, I said it for your good. You know I've always been a staunch friend to you. Don't touch me. Finish what you have to say. A twisted flash of pain shot across the painter's face. He paused for a moment, and a wild feeling of pity came over him. After all, what right had he to pry into the life of Dorian Gray? If he had done a tithe of what was rumoured about him, how much he must have suffered. He straightened himself up and walked over to the fireplace and stood there, looking at the burning logs with their frost like ashes and throbbing cores of flame. I am waiting, Basil, said the young man in a hard, clear voice. He turned round. What I have to say is this, he cried. You must give some answer to these horrible charges that are made against you. If you tell me they are absolutely untrue from beginning to end, I shall believe you. Deny them, Dorian. Deny them. Can't you see what I am going through? My God. Don't tell me that you are bad and corrupt and shameful. Dorian Gray smiled. There was a curl of contempt in his lips. Come upstairs, Basil, he said quietly. I keep a diary of my life from day to day. It never leaves the room in which it is written. I shall show it to you if you come with me. I shall come with you, Dorian, if you wish it. I see I have missed my train. That makes no matter. I can go tomorrow. But don't ask me to read anything tonight. All I want is a plain answer to my question. That... Shall be given to you upstairs. I could not give it here. You will not have to read long. Chapter 13. He passed out of the room and began the ascent, Basil Hallward following close behind. They walked softly, as men do instinctively at night. The lamp cast fantastic shadows on the wall and staircase, and a rising wind made some of the windows rattle. When they reached the top landing, Dorian set the lamp down on the floor. Taking out the key, turned it in the lock. You insist on knowing, Basil, he asked in a low voice. Yes. I am delighted, he answered, smiling. He added, somewhat harshly, You are the one man in the world who is entitled to know everything about me. You have had more to do with my life than you think. Taking up the lamp, he opened the door and went in. A cold current of air passed them and the light shot up for a moment in a flame of murky orange. He shuddered. Shut the door behind you, he whispered. He placed the lamp on the table. Hallward glanced round him with a puzzled expression. The room looked as if it had not been lived in for years, a faded Flemish tapestry, a curtained picture, an almost empty bookcase. That was all that it seemed to contain, besides a chair and a table. As Dorian Gray was lighting a half-burned candle that was standing on the mantel shelf, he saw the whole place was covered with dust. The carpet was in holes. A mouse ran scuffling behind the wainscoting, there was a damp odor of mildew. So you think that it is only God who sees the soul, Basil. Draw the curtain back and you will see mine. The voice that spoke was cold and cruel. You are mad, Dorian, or playing a part. Hallward frowned. You won't? Then I must do it myself, said the young man, and he tore the curtain from its rod and flung it to the ground. An exclamation of horror broke from the painter's lips as he saw in the dim light the hideous face on the canvas grinning at him. There was something in its expression that filled him with disgust and loathing. Good heavens, it was Dorian Gray's own face that he was looking at. The horror, whatever it was, had not yet entirely spoiled that marvellous beauty. There was still some gold in the thinning hair, Some scarlet on the sensual mouth. The sodden eyes had kept something of the loveliness out of their blue. The noble curves had not yet completely passed away from chiseled nostrils and from plastic throat. Yes, it was Dorian himself, but who had done it? He seemed to recognize his own brushwork, and the frame was his own design. The idea was monstrous, yet he felt afraid. He seized the lighted candle and held it to the picture. In the left-hand corner was his own name, traced in long letters of bright vermilion. It was some foul parody, some infamous, ignoble satire. He had never done that. Still, it was his own picture. He knew it. He felt as if his blood had changed in a moment from fire to sluggish ice. His own picture... What did it mean? Why had it altered? He turned and looked at Dorian Gray with the eyes of a sick man. His mouth twitched and his parched tongue seemed unable to articulate. He passed his hand across his forehead. It was dank with clammy sweat. The young man was leaning against the mantel shelf, watching him with that strange expression that one sees on the faces of those who are absorbed in a play when some great artist is acting. There was neither real sorrow in it, nor real joy. There was simply the passion of the spectator, perhaps a flicker of triumph in his eyes. He had taken the flower out of his coat and was smelling it, or pretending to do so. "'What does this mean?' cried Hallward at last. His voice sounded shrill and curious in his own ears. "'Years ago,' When I was a boy, said Dorian Gray, crushing the flower in his hand. You met me, flattered me, taught me to be vain of my good looks. One day, you introduced me to a friend of yours who explained to me the wonder of youth and you finished a portrait of me that revealed to me the wonder of beauty. In a mad moment, even now, I don't know whether I regret it or not. I made a wish. Perhaps you would call it a prayer. I remember it. Oh, how well I remember it. No, the thing is impossible. The room is damp. Mildew has got into the canvas. The the paints I used had wretched mineral poison in them. I tell you, it's impossible. Ah, what is impossible, murmured the young man, going over to the window and leaning his forehead against the cold mist-stained glass. "'You told me you had destroyed it. "'I was wrong. "'It has destroyed me. "'I don't believe it's my picture.' "'Can't you see your ideal in it?' said Dorian bitterly. "'My ideal, as you call it. "'As you called it. "'There was nothing evil in it. "'Nothing shameful. "'You were, to me, such an ideal as I shall never meet again. "'This is the face of a satyr.' It is the face of my soul. Christ, what a thing I must have worshipped. It has the eyes of a devil. Each of us has heaven and hell in him, Basil. Hallward turned again to the portrait and gazed at it. My God, if it is true, he exclaimed, and this is what you have done with your life, Why? you must be worse even than those who talk against you fancy you to be. He held the light up again to the canvas and examined it. The surface seemed to be quite undisturbed and as he had left it. It was from within, apparently, that the foulness and horror had come. Some strange quickening of inner life and the leprosies of sin were slowly eating the thing away. The rotting of a corpse in a watery grave was not so fearful. His hand shook and the candle fell from its socket on the floor and lay there, sputtering. He placed his foot on it and put it out. He flung himself into the rickety chair that was standing by the table and buried his face in his hands. Good God, Dorian. What a lesson. What an awful lesson. There was no answer. But he could hear the young man sobbing at the window. Pray, Dorian. Pray, he murmured. What is it that one was taught to say in one's boyhood? Lead us not into temptation. Forgive us our sins. Wash away our iniquities. Let us say that together. The prayer of your pride has been answered. The prayer of your repentance will be answered also. I worshipped you too much. I am punished for it. You worshipped yourself too much. We are both punished. Dorian Gray turned slowly around and looked at him with tear-dimmed eyes. It is too late, Basil, he faltered. It is never too late, Dorian. Let us kneel down and try if we cannot remember a prayer. Isn't there a verse somewhere? Through your sins be as scarlet, yet I will make them as white as snow. Those words mean nothing to me now. Hush. Don't say that. You have done enough evil in your life, my God, don't you see that accursed thing leering at us? Dorian Gray glanced at the picture, and suddenly an uncontrollable feeling of hatred for Basil Hallward came over him, as though it had been suggested to him by the image on the canvas, whispered into his ear by grinning lips. The mad passions of a hunted animal stirred within him. He loathed the man who was seated at the table more than in his whole life he had ever loathed anything. He glanced wildly around. Something glimmered on top of a painted chest that faced him. His eye fell on it. He knew what it was. It was a knife that he had brought up some days ago to cut a piece of cord. He had forgotten to take it away with him. He moved slowly towards it, passing hallward as he did so. As soon as he got behind him, he seized it and turned around. Hallward stirred in his chair as if he was going to rise. He rushed at him and dug the knife into the great vein that is behind the ear, crushing the man's head down on the table and stabbing again and again. There was a stifled groan, the horrible sound of someone choking with blood. Three times the outstretched arms shot up convulsively, waving grotesque, stiff-fingered hands in the air. He stabbed him twice more, but the man did not move. Something began to trickle on the floor. He waited for a moment, still pressing the head down. Then he threw the knife on the table and listened. He could hear nothing but the drip, drip. On the threadbare carpet. He opened the door and went out on the landing. The house was absolutely quiet. No one was about. For a few seconds he stood bending over and peering down into the black seething well of darkness. He took out the key and returned to the room, locking himself in as he did so. The thing was still seated in the chair, straining over the table with bowed head and humped back and long fantastic arms. Had it not been for the red jagged tear in the neck and clotted black pool slowly widening on the table, one would have said the man was simply asleep. How quickly it had all been done. He felt strangely calm. Walking over to the window, he opened it and stepped out onto the balcony. The wind had blown the fog away, and the sky was like a monstrous peacock's tail, starred with myriads of golden eyes. He looked down and saw the policeman going his rounds, flashing the long beam of his lantern on the doors of silent houses. The crimson spot of a prowling hansom gleamed at the corner and vanished. A woman in a fluttering shawl creeping slowly by the railings, staggering as she went. Now and then she stopped and peered back. Once she began to sing in a hoarse voice. The policeman strolled over and said something to her. She stumbled away, laughing. A bitter blast swept across the square. The gas lamps flickered and became blue. The leafless trees shook and their black iron branches went to and fro. He shivered and went back, closing the window behind him. Having reached the door, he turned the key and opened it. He did not even glance at the murdered man. He felt that the secret of the whole thing was not to realize the situation. The friend who had painted the fatal portrait to which all his misery had been due had gone out of his life. That was enough. Then he remembered the lamp. It was a rather curious one of Moorish workmanship made of dull silver inlaid with arabesques of burnished steel, studded with coarse turquoises. Perhaps it might be missed by his servant. Questions would be asked. He hesitated for a moment. He turned back and took it from the table. He could not help seeing the dead thing. How still it was, how horribly white the long hands looked like a dreadful wax image. Having locked the door behind him, he crept quietly downstairs. The woodwork creaked and seemed to cry out as if in pain. He stopped several times and waited. No, everything was still. It was merely the sound of his own footsteps. When he reached the library, he saw the bag and coat in the corner. They must be hidden away. Somewhere. He unlocked a secret press that was in the wainscoting and a press in which he kept his own curious disguises and put them into it. He could easily burn them afterwards. He pulled for his watch. It was twenty minutes to two. He sat down and began to think. Every year, every month almost, men were strangled in England for what he had done. There had been a madness of murder in the air. Some red star had come too close to earth, and yet what evidence was there against him? Basil Hallward had left the house at eleven. No one had seen him come in again. Most of the servants were at Selby Royal. His valet had gone to bed. Paris, yes, it was to Paris that Basil had gone, and by the midnight train as he had intended— with his curious reserved habits, it would be months before any suspicion would be roused. Months. Everything could be destroyed long before then. A sudden thought struck him. He put on his fur coat and hat and went out into the hall. There he paused, hearing the slow, heavy tread of the policeman on the pavement outside and seeing the flash of the bull's eye reflected in the window. He waited and held his breath. After a few minutes, he drew back the latch and slipped out, shutting the door gently behind him. He began ringing the bell. In about five minutes, his valet appeared half-dressed and looking very drowsy. "'I'm sorry I had to wake you up, Francis. I had forgotten my latch key. What time is it?' Ten minutes past two, sir,' answered the man, looking at the clock and blinking." Ten minutes past two. How horribly late. You must wake me at 9 tomorrow. I have some work to do.' "'All right, sir.' "'Did anyone call this evening?' "'Mr. Hallward, sir. He stayed here till eleven, and went away to catch his train.' "'Oh, I- I'm so sorry I didn't see him. Did he leave any message?' "'No, sir, except that he would write to you from Paris, if he did not find you at the club.' "'That will do, Francis.' don't forget to call me at nine tomorrow. No, sir. The man shambled down the passage in his slippers. Dorian Gray threw his hat and coat upon the table and passed into the library. For a quarter of an hour he walked up and down the room, biting his lip and thinking. He took down the blue book from one of the shelves and began to turn over the leaves. Alan Campbell, 152. Hartford Street, Mayfair. Yes, that was the man he wanted. And that is where we close the book tonight on this episode of Down to Sleep.